Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 102. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah chapters 48 through 51 and follow the consideration of the literal and figurative and monsters of the deep. Chapter 40 in Deutero-Isaiah is tinged with rebuke for the Jewish people. This rebuke rains down during the period immediately after the return to Zion, specifically to the people settled in Jerusalem. But then again, on a second reading, it's more like a drizzle of rebuke. And it's more directed at the Jews' past behaviors, which for Deutero Yeshayahu provides the rickety foundations for the mischief of the present day, which include hypocrisy, stubbornness, and a penchant for idolatry. Quote, Though I know you are treacherous, that you were called a rebel from birth. This rebuke does not focus on anything specific. There are no breakdowns of sins or misdemeanors. It's more like the aggrieved parent shouting at his kids, I'm going to reach back into the back seat and whoever I smack, you deserve it. The people lack faith. And it's this lack of faith that has brought the prophet to warn the people about what is to come. So when it comes, the people can't deny why it came. And Deutero Yeshayahu goes on to explain why the redemption will eventually come to a pack of idiot sinners who don't really deserve it. Quote, For my sake, my own sake, I act, lest my name be dishonored. I will not give my glory to another. God will redeem the Jews, because if the Jews are ruined, the Gentiles will say that God is a terrible God because he could not look after his own people. God, however, is not just the God of Israel and the benefactor of the Jews. God is also the first and the last, the creator of the world, the spreader out of skies, the lord of history who guided Cyrus in his victory over the wicked Babylonians. This formulation does raise a question, however. Is God the lord of history because he is the grand creator, or are we to understand that because of his total domination of history, he is also the creator of all things? From how Deuteroyashayahu orders his pronouncement, it is probably the first. Premise. I am the first, and I am the last as well. My own hand founded the earth. My right hand spread out the skies. Thus, quote, I, I predicted, and I called him. I have brought him, and he shall succeed in his mission. The him is Cyrus. And those in the know will be wise to listen to God's commandments. Quote, if only you would heed my commands, then your prosperity would be like a river, your triumph like the waves of the sea. And then the next thing, quote, go forth from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with loud shouting, announce this, bring out the word to the ends of the earth. Chapter 49 is a callback to the servant of God. If you recall from the previous episode, there was a whole discussion about the identity of this guy. Was it Jesus? Was it Moshe? Was it Yeshayahu? Well, here Deutero Yeshayahu tells, quote, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I glory. Though the intro here is reminiscent of Yirmiyahu's call to prophecy, specifically when Deutero Yeshayahu says, quote, The Lord appointed me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. The servant is not an adorable little baby gurgling and cooing. He is God's weapon. Quote, he made my mouth like a sharpened blade. He hid me in the shadow of his hand, and he made me like a polished arrow. He concealed me in his quiver. But he also knows that the arrow will not land. Quote, I thought I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for empty breath. Such is the fate of God's servant here, as well as the prophets in Israel. 
Except if you dig a little more in this chapter's description about the servant's tasks of raising up the Jews, of being a light unto the nations, a man respected by kings and officials before whom they will bow in the future, this is not a prophet, but a messianic figure. Only the true Messiah denies his divinity. What? Well, what sort of chance does that give me? All right, I am the Messiah. How shall we fuck off, O oh Lord? Chapter 49 concludes with a rousing vision of the future Jerusalem rebuilt and made whole. Zion is not forgotten. Quote, Can a woman forget her baby or disown the child of her womb? And the people, once downtrodden, will be lifted up as well. Quote, Kings shall tend your children. Their queens shall serve you as nurses. God will redeem. And in the beginning of chapter 50, God continues, quote, Where is the bill of divorce of your mother whom I dismissed? And which of my creditors was it to whom I sold you off? You were only sold off for your sins, and your mother dismissed for your crimes. Once again, the servant of God speaks, quote, The Lord God gave me a skilled tongue to know how to speak timely words to the weary. Well, you can imagine how those timely words were received. God's servant sounds here more like a typical suffering prophet than a magical messianic figure, but with one significant difference. He does not run. Quote, I offered my back to the floggers and my cheek to those who tore out my hair. I did not hide my face from insult and spittle. God's servant is sure steadfast. Quote, I have set my face like flint, and I know I shall not be shamed. And all those people that attacked him, quote, they shall all wear out like a garment. The moth shall consume them. So here's an interesting fact. For being the founders of the Jewish people, Avraham is mentioned something like seven times in all of the prophetic books. And three of them appear in this section of Deuteroyashayahu, and it's not any specific incident involving Avraham, like haggling with God over the sinners of Sodom, or the Akedah, the binding of Yitzchak. It's just like a nod to the man for being the father of the Jewish people. And this is the only place outside of Genesis that mentions Sarah. The other matriarchs don't do any better. Rivka is mentioned exclusively in Genesis Leah is mentioned once in the book of Ruth, and the big winner is Rachel, who's mentioned three times outside of the book of Genesis. Verse 9 pivots from divine redemption to divine smackdown, but this time it is not Israel that will get smacked, but Rahav, the primeval monster of the deep, the dragon whom God will pierce with his weapon. Release the kraken! And if God can defeat these monsters, think of what he'll do to mortal men. In other words, Jews, fear not. Quote, you are my people. Rouse, rouse yourself. Arise, Jerusalem. You who, for whom the Lord's hand have drunk the cup of his wrath. You who have drained the dregs of the bowl, the cup of reeling. But again, Jews, fear not. This cup that delivered devastation will pass into the hands of your tormentors and ruin them. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. someone who grew up with a classical Jewish education, I have to admit that the image of God fighting dragons is a bit awkward. Release the Kraken. 
mean, the, the Tanakh has his outliers, talking snakes, muttering donkeys, and avenging angels, but demonic monsters? Deuteroyashayahu calls it Rahav, but earlier, as we discussed in episode 96, he calls it Leviathan. Leviathan, or Leviathan, can be traced back to the earlier Canaanite sea monster, Lotan, who in the Canaanite cosmology is described as a servant of the sea god Yamu or Yam, which is also Hebrew word for sea. Anyhow, Yamu and Lotan are defeated by the storm god Baal. As described in the Baal cycle, quote, And the weapon springs from the hand of Baal like a raptor from between his fingers. It strikes the skull of Prince Yam between the eyes of Judge Nahar. Yam collapses, he falls to the earth. His joints quiver and his spine shakes. Thereupon Baal drags out and hacks Yam into pieces. Oh damn! The Enuma Elish, which sets out the Babylonian cosmology, describes Marduk's defeat of the serpent goddess Tiamat. Quote, He let fly an arrow and pierced her belly. He tore open her entrails and slit her innards. He bound her and extinguished her life. He threw down her corpse and stood on it. After he had killed Tiamat the leader, her assembly dispersed, her host scattered, her divine aides who went beside her in trembling and fear beat a retreat to save their lives. But they were completely surrounded, unable to escape. He bound them and broke their weapons, and they lay enmeshed, sitting in a snare, hiding in corners, filled with grief, bearing his punishment held in a prison. The eleven creatures who were laden with fearfulness, the throng of devils who went as grooms at her right hand, he put ropes upon them and bound their arms. Together with their warfare, he trampled them beneath him. Tiamat in the form of Tehom, or the abyss, the deep, features in the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, quote, When the earth was wild and waste, darkness over the face of ocean, rushing spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And incidentally, 20 verses later, quote, God created the great sea serpents, that is, Leviathan. Leviathan also appears in the first book of Enoch, a book traditionally not included in the Tanakh. Chapter 60 describes Leviathan as a female monster that, quote, dwells in the abysses of the ocean over the fountains of the waters. But the male is named Behemoth, who occupied it with his breast, a waste wilderness named Duidion. Later sources identify Leviathan as a dragon who lives over the deep, who along with Behemoth will be served up as a tasty barbecue for the righteous in heaven at the end of days. Mm-hmm. This is a tasty burger. The Talmud elaborates further. Tractate Baba Batra 75a recounts that Leviathan's flesh will not only be served to the righteous, but its skin will be used to cover the tent where the banquet will take place. Yohanan bar Nafcha, who seems to be the source for all these fabulous legends, stated, quote, Once we went in a ship and saw a fish which put his head out of the water. He had horns upon, which was written, I am one of the meanest creatures that inhabit the sea. I am 300 miles in length and enter this day into the jaws of the Leviathan. And according to Deuteroyashayahu, God smites this monster which, as I said, evokes all kinds of feels because, as I was taught, God is supposed to be without form, a presence, a spirit, a feeling. How does he hold a sword? And then I hearken back to Genesis in the story of the Garden of Eden, and there mentions there that, that God strolls in the garden. And in other stories, God appears as a recognizable human. My dear guests, I am Mr. Roth, your host. Welcome to Fantasy Island. 
God also has feelings, vengefulness, wrath, envy. God bears grudges. Hello, Dave. You're looking well today. And even though I know about the history, development, and evolution in religious thinking, about monotheism, monolatry, and henotheism, the move from the concrete to the abstract, and I've talked at great length in previous episodes about the resounding rejection of idolatry, which ironically earned Jews the label of atheist in the classical world, as well as antisocial because of the resounding rejection of idols. You know, among the three cardinal sins for which someone was to submit to being killed before violating them, idolatry was the first. And idolatry comes in many forms, as my kids and I discussed in episode 100. Maimonides wrote in his Guide to the Perplexed that no one actually believed that their idols were gods. Idols are, quote, worshipped in respect of it being an image of a thing that is an intermediary between ourselves and God. But Maimonides takes it a step further. Not only believing that God has a body, but merely believing, quote, that one of the states of the body belongs to him, you provoke his jealousy and anger, kindle the fire of his wrath, and are a hater, an enemy, and an adversary of God, much more so than an idolater. So what am I supposed to think when Deutero Yeshayahu or Yechezkel or the author of Genesis states that God battled and defeated this monster of the deep? It does not compute. Indeed, a God personified is no God. Or... Is he or she? For early Jews and even for later ones, God's war on Leviathan could have been taken literally. Reveling in the action, the blow by blow, or it could be understood as a figurative account of the supernatural battle between order and chaos, light and dark, or good and evil. Practically every ancient Near Eastern culture has this battle as part of its cosmology, and like Maimonides and others have asserted, it is not necessarily the case that each of these cultures took these accounts literally. God defeats Leviathan, good prevails over evil. Either way, it's a happy ending. And in those days, as in these days, we could definitely use one. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. Or, if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 103, when we continue in the Book of Isaiah with chapters 52 through 55.